The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, John Sears, Vice President at Gregory Mountain Products, speaks to students in outdoor product design and development about creating soft goods and his pathway into the outdoors through industrial design. You know, my name is John Sears. I uh, currently am the Vice President of Gregory and basically the General Manager of the, of the North America business with some global oversight um, for the uh, brand. Um, in our uh, other regions. Uh, we sell in about 45 countries. Um, I think some of you are probably familiar with the, the brand, maybe some more so than others, but um, you know, Gregory makes uh, premium outdoor equipment, you know, gear carry, gear storage, primarily backpacks for uh, hiking, backpacking, skiing. Um, and we were founded back in 77, um, so we've been around quite a, quite a while. But I'll just give you a brief background on myself um, so you can kind of have some context. Um, I got an ID degree from Georgia Tech, um, graduated back in 2001, um, and I went to uh, go work for uh, Motorola. My old man was an executive at Motorola, and so he got me some cush job in their design department. And uh, I, I quickly discovered uh, really, really wasn't for me in terms of designing phones and radios, and um, I didn't enjoy the research as much. So I decided to make a you know, choice and you know, combine passion with play and get into the outdoor space. So, um, I, uh, you know, applied for a few different jobs in the West coast, ended up getting a, a junior design job at Gregory and, um, moved out to California and mentored underneath the founder of the company, Wayne Gregory there for a number of years. <clears throat> so, you know, to kind of start out, I guess, you know, that was, you know, for me, I had some, some soft goods experience in college, but maybe nothing like what you guys have the opportunity in your time ahead to get involved in if you like it. I think soft goods and hard goods are definitely different. Uh, however, backpacks kind of, you know, in, in our world, um, it is an, a niche world to some extent, but it's kind of a combination of hard goods and soft goods, um, but more soft goods focused because we do build suspension systems and have to deal with, you know, injection molding and kind of the hard parts integration. So we're on the apparel side, you're kind of pure soft goods. Um, and on like the skull candy side, for example, you know, you're fairly pure, pure hard goods. Um, we kind of run the boundary in between where you got to deal with load carriage um, and uh, also the soft goods textile side of things. So to, uh, I don't know, to kind of give you, you know, kind of what Chase is asking for is a little bit of the life in the, the, the eyes of an industrial designer in the soft goods space. So I can jump ahead a bunch of years, but, you know, just for, I guess, some macro context, I was a designer for, you know, probably five or six years and then worked into a design management position um, with no direct reports, but with some 
oversight over the design. And then I worked in a, to a senior design position, which typically, you know, might include either direct leadership um, of the whole design department or uh, potentially some direct design reports and then into, uh, you know, global, uh, global design management and then into operations and then um, into more of a general management role where I'm managing operations, uh, marketing, uh, finance, the P&L, um, as well as product creation, engineering, and uh, sourcing. So, you know, Gregory's not a huge company. We're only 15 people here in the Utah office, um, but we have offices in Japan, Belgium, uh, Hong Kong, and uh, <clears throat> Latin America. So, the... Uh, yeah, so as far as industrial design goes um, and, and soft goods, you know, the way that Gregory is structured now, every company is a little bit unique. You'll find that um, in terms of structure and how they define product line management and, you know, if they, whether or not they run a designer and developer team or some companies will run just designers that do the development work as well. But, you know, there's... There's three great career paths um, when it comes to you know design, development, product line management, and those kind of each require a little bit different skill set and different experience. And you know, generally speaking, um, they have some commonalities in all companies. So uh, you know, I want to you know be the master of the obvious, but you know, the designer um, obviously is in charge of product creation um, in our in our world and you know, ideation and identifying you know, trends as well. Um, but they do that in partnership with the product line manager. Um, and the product line manager in our world acts as the bridge uh, between product development and creation and R&D and marketing. So that's kind of the way I talk about our product line management setup. They really run kind of end to end. So they begin with you know, identifying trends in the marketplace in concert with designers at the front end of the process and create the product briefs, um, which, you know, each company handles a little bit differently, but I think it's a very important part of the process that carries over directly from your experience in school. And then all the way to the back end, um, you know, they, they kind of manage some of the costing along the way, make sure that we, that person, the product line manager will kind of be in tune with the customer in terms of the reality of product creation is you can't have everything you want all the time. And, you know, we end up having to make some tough decisions about features and benefits versus, you know, cost and commercial price points. And so the product line manager will be the one to make those hard decisions um, when it comes time to finalize the product. And then the product line manager also, as the person that, you know, understands the product and has that is kind of the spiritual center of the product, they also act as that bridge to marketing to ensure the true features and benefits are communicated in the marketing collateral. And they kind of do that final pass off to marketing before we start to communicate to our, you know, to our customers first and then to our you know, end consumers. So you'll find the models change quite a bit between companies that are wholesale based like a Gregory, you know, um, that sell to REI um, versus companies that are, there's so many more companies now that are just pure direct consumer. And so those timelines are quite different um, in terms of how you go to market. And, uh, you know, obviously in a, in a direct consumer business, you can shorten those lead times, go directly to market as soon as the product's ready. 
Whereas in the, in the wholesale world, which most outdoor companies are, are structured as now, you tend to have to launch products, you know, eight months, you know, seven, eight months to your, to your customers before they buy them, commit to the following year and uh, ultimately launch the product, um, you know, eight months after it gets shown to, to key retailers. So the timelines are a lot more stretched out and that has an impact on the product creation process. But for, uh, and Chase, you know, and, or Andrew, feel free to jump in here. If you find it, something you want to dive down in, it's, you know, 40 minutes of one-way conversations. Um, I don't want to, you know, uh, not provide the best value to you guys. So just jump in anytime. Um, so, you know, soft goods wise on our side, you know, the product brief creation process, um, that's always a really challenging one um, for all companies. And you'll find that, you know, that timeline gets compressed um, quite a bit. And there's a lot of pressure on that in the, in the real design world. And, you know, I think you, you might, you know, you know, the best thing you can do is try to get an internship at a company for sure. So you can see that really happening. Um, but there is a lot of really applicable things that you learn in school about defining design objectives and problems um, in that early stage of a, of a design brief. Yeah, I think are really valuable. Um, what we all kind of have to realize as creatives too is we, we work best, we really do work best in a constraint box. Um, and that's where creativity thrives. So um, you tend to, you tend to want to build a really smart constraint box around um, a product brief in the real world. Um, that constraint box includes price points um, and, and really making sure you're defining that target consumer. Um, but that's, you know, fairly obvious, but expect that to happen, you know, and expect, I think in school, as you move forward and I'm not sure, you know, how many of you will take, you know, which path, but, um, as a designer or a developer, I think it's really important to kind of embrace that process and find the right time and place to be fully blue sky. Um, creativity always tapers down, you know, it always starts here and ends here. Um, so it is important to start in a, in a, you know, blue sky mind space, but understand that finding the balance between, you know, a commercial product. When I say commercial, I mean something that hits the right price point, you know, and has the right level of innovation, super important. And a lot of that comes down on the soft goods side to, you know, to being clever about the way you do things and not just spending a bunch of money. Yeah, Andrew? Yeah, so I was going to say um, a lot of designers out there, they'll uh they'll feel like their creativity or their creative freedom gets trampled by a design brief um because some some brands will have a very uh very constrained or very pointed design brief where others it's a little more open um just from your personal experience how do you how do you at gregory i guess how to what level do you constrain some of your design briefs and from being a designer how did you handle either really open ones or really narrowly focused ones. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the, you know, obviously it depends on the type of project. Um, for, so for Gregory, um, when we when we identify, it's really important in design to never find a solution and then or to have it to, to come up with a solution in your mind, create, create creatively, and then try to find the problem that you're solving. 
Um, that's like kind of a classic mistake that leads to failed product. Um, we, we're all creative, so it's hard. We come up with these ideas. And we're like, oh, I had this idea. We get locked into it. And then we go and try to find the problem we're solving versus the other way around. So to answer your question for Gregory, when we see a problem in the marketplace or a white space, that's when things can be very blue sky for us. And the, and the brief tends to stay very wide open um, for a period of time. Um, and then what we do is, you know, you kind of step down one level and say, okay, we think we've identified and focused in on some of these problems. And now, now the brief needs to be created so we can pick a direction and go. Because even, you know, even in the real design world, oftentimes it's not a linear process, um, product creation. And so you tend to come up with ideas midstream that might totally change the, the way you're approaching the project, which, you know, is, is always a challenge, but, um, sometimes you have to just stick to the timeline. So as a designer, um, you know, with derivative projects that were much more constrained, um, when I first got into the you know, industry, um, you know, those were comforting in a way, but as I got more confident, you know, in my product creation capabilities, um, they got frustrating, you know, but then I came full circle and realized, um, these things are super necessary for the business. And, you really want to bring value to a company by understanding when you want to reinvent the wheel and when you don't. Um, so a lot of times what will happen as a designer is I'll want to create something new every time, you know, something totally new and different every time and reinvent the wheel every time. And the reality is design is not art <laughs> in my view, right? There's a, there's a big difference. So if you want to be an artist, you can be an artist. That's about creating kind of one-off pieces. And I do that, you know, in my spare time still, because I'm not designing products as much. But when it comes to design, you have to turn a switch and say, I need to focus and guide my creativity and understand that, you know, the most successful portfolio that I've ever seen is when a designer has the ability to throw the sales and the margin on a product um, and show, hey, I got five years of design experience. Here are my successful products. Here's what I contributed to them. And here, here's, where the, here's where the sales actually delivered results. So it is finding that balance of we're all creatives, um, but it's a business that you're you know, applying that creativity to. So know that it's not art. You know, know that it's still industrial design. It's called industrial design for a reason. And you know, it's about repeatability and manufacturability. And, you know, ultimately about getting great hands in the, you know, getting great products in the hands of consumers. So we've had a number at Gregor, we've had a number of, you know, great products. Um, I can give you some examples. You know, one time we built some amazing luggage um, with $100,000 in tooling, right? And it was this uh, beautiful wide hand handle luggage with the, all these patents on it, custom wheels, custom chassis, um, patented items all over it. The luggage um, was the best reviewed, some of the best reviewed luggage we ever had, right? Everyone loved it. People still tell me about it. It was 10 years ago. This is the best piece of luggage I've ever used, but it was way overpriced, you know, because of all the custom work that we did. And there's so many examples of failed products that didn't have a place in the market 
because of price point um, or feature sets, but they're still great products. And, you know, those great products are not successful products, um, if that makes sense. So that's, I think that's, that's a real challenge. And you have to get in the mindset as a designer of a successful product is a product that sells well for the company that I'm working for. Um, sometimes there are, of course, Vector and Halo products, um, but you're not always going to get to work on those, right? Vector and Halo products for us, meaning, you know, Alpine products um, that sell very few units, but service, um, you know, some of the you know, most advanced Alpine climbing in the world. Um, or backcountry ski packs for us that, um, you know, are very niche um, business. We're not a ski company, but, you know, we make some of the best ski packs in the world, but we um, sell a limited amount of those because you know, it's more for brand image than it is for um, commercial success. So I think understanding that balance, understanding that it's, that it's design and, you know, industrial design and not art, understanding that those constraints are there to help you um, create a commercial product um, and understanding when in the process to be open and embrace the constraint box that needs to be put in place. Um, so, you know, for me, those were some things that I learned over the years and, you know, finding that balance is, is good. And, you know, as a, as a manager of that process um, and, and as a participant, it's not, it really is not a linear process. You know, don't expect it to be. Um, there's always timelines and they look beautiful. You know, the timelines are like ideation, you know, blue sky, product brief, I, you know, ideation, product development, prototyping, blah, 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 you know, all the way to commercialization. Um, but it, it never really, it never really is that smooth. You often jump, have to jump back in the process um, when a new idea is identified and you have the time to implement it. Or you decide, hey, this new idea is great, but you have a good, you know, management team guiding you and says, this is an awesome idea. Um, let's start the, developing this now for the next season rather than, than for this season. So those type of things happen a lot, um, you know, in the, in the design world. And, you know, for us, um, you know, the ideation process is one we, you know, go through it's fairly typical, like what you'd expect. Gregory runs a hybrid model between um, prototyping and pattern making in-house. We have, we do have a, a full-time pattern maker and we have a prototype lab with a full-time um, master sample silver in there. And so we're lucky enough to have that. All companies don't. Um, oftentimes those resources are located, um, you know, where your factory is and they have the pattern makers there on site. So, you know, one of the most important you know, skill sets to learn is enough cut and sew knowledge about, about how seams go together and how seams lay. Um, and I could, you know, in person, it'd be easier to walk you through a pack and show you 20 examples of this. Um, but ultimately, you know, striving and having a passion for the, for the, for the cut and sew process helps you with the ability to draw concepts that will work. All right. We have some designers, uh, you know, I'll give you just a real example. We have some product designers that can draw some gorgeous bags, um, impossible to sell, right. Impossible to produce. Um, and it's not just about designing a good looking bag. It's about designing a bag that, you know, when, when sewn together, 
has the right drape and the right um, the right body to it, and you know has the right uh, functionality. Because a lot of in a lot of times, people in soft goods will not think about the way the bag lays and drape. Um, they'll just think about the way the bag looks perfectly stuffed out with stuffing and gear in it. So with any soft goods, very important to review them um, stuffed out and in their you know, photography type format, but also in drape hanging on a hanger in a retail shop. Um, so that's something that a lot of soft goods, even companies overlook is they tend to not review, they review these things in, in um, one world or the other and not in both. So with any soft goods, important to load it up with real gear and use it and see how it, you know, works and drapes with real gear in it, but also um, how it's going to look empty on the retail shop floor. Um, And there's lots of, there's lots of examples and packs, you know, products in the graveyard and soft goods um, because they, they look gorgeous stuffed out and perfect in photography. Um, But as soon as you get the bag in your hands and used it and look at it empty, um, it's not a, it's not a very usable product. So that's something to always, you know, keep in mind. Um, but once the design, you know, once the designer puts concepts down on paper, um, for us, you know, we go through a couple rounds of ideation, um, and try to get as finished as we can, um, on the 2d side of things. And we have a lot of, you know, people with experience that can help comment on that. We'll get our pattern maker involved in the 2d as well to comment on it. She can, you know, provide some insights into, uh, I can't, we can't really do this. There's no way for me to pattern this. And then from there we'll, we'll, we'll say, okay, we're fairly locked and loaded on a, uh, on a design concept here. And then it gets passed either to our factory pattern team or to our in-house pattern and prototype team. And, you know, we crank out what we call, you know, blocks. So we'll crank out block shapes first to just get the general architecture of the bag. Um, and then once that block shape is really refined, um, and you know, the architecture looks good. Then we'll start layering all the features on top of it. Um, that process for us, you know, could mean, you know, two prototypes. Um, but it often means, you know, 10 prototypes. Um, Andrew Chase, you know, what's useful for you guys? I mean, do you want me to walk through the, uh, I mean, depending on the level that you guys are in, and anyone could speak up, but what's the most useful, you know, conversation for me to have with you guys about that part of the process? So I was going to say, um, it was really good where you're talking about the patterning because we put our students through, well, depending on how many they want, they can go through three or four, uh, cut and sew type courses with a patterning specific course. Um, and so they're very familiar kind of with those tools, but are there digital tools that you're using during this whole process? I would assume maybe you're sketching Procreate or still sketching by hand. You've got people, maybe an illustrator. Could you maybe walk through some of those digital tools? So those that are kind of interested in this realm know which tools they need to keep practicing a lot. Yeah. And are there new, are there some of the newer 3d, um, technologies that are coming down the pipeline that you're either looking at or, or maybe interested in, in pursuing at some point? Yeah. So right now, the way we're old school on the patterning side, we actually use AutoCAD. Okay. Um, and the reason we do that, we've looked at patterning softwares. There is like a lot of apparel patterning software and they're getting a little more friendly towards soft goods. Um, and there is some 3D, you know, kind of, you know, unpeel the banana 
um, type software out there that I, I see some designers using and playing with. Those things are great. I think those will all those will all get here. I can't tell you which ones to focus on. I can just tell you what we do. Mm-hmm. I think there is a future in it, but right now what we do um, is we use you know Procreate um, and uh, a lot of people are now on just iPad Pros, but we do have Cintiq tablets as well. Um, big Cintiqs for the office. And then we use a combination of Photoshop and Illustrator uh, um, to, uh, you know, sketch, layer, and put all, you know, look at, there's a, in software, there's a lot of layering concepts. So like foam cocktails with like mesh over a foam with a background transparency. And so those can be done a little bit easier, <laughs> you know, without having all the materials in front of you, those can be done a little easier um, in Photoshop, but then illustrator is a good tool for us for the designers because they can give us orthos, um, in, uh, full scale. And that's helpful for a factory and that's helpful for a pattern maker as well. On, on the skill side, um, on sketching in particular, I know a lot of the students in this class are probably in the sketching class right now. And some of them probably asking themselves why they're drawing so many boxes and circles and straight lines. Maybe you can speak to where that really pays off um, when you need to, you know, crank out a bunch of concepts um, and bags and and maybe the building blocks of, of learning, you know, those, those core skills before you jump into designing bags themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, the, you're, you know, the hard reality of design, right, is, you do need to have, you do need to have the ability to communicate your concepts in 3D on, on paper. And if you can't do that, um, you're going to have trouble, right, as a designer. So the fundamentals of sketching are super critical. Um, and I would encourage anyone, I mean, I, w- I wish I had put more energy into my sketching ability when I was in school. Um, when I ended up going over to Motorola first for an internship, um, to work on radios and phones, you know, I was, I was one out of 10, um, you know, but in four months, what, what the guys at Motorola taught me, and these were guys that were, you know, they could crank out a gorgeous Porsche in you know, 10 minutes right in front of you, right in front of you. And some of the best illustrators I've ever seen in my life. Um, those guys just drove me, drove me and drove me and drove me to sketch. Um, and so, yeah, sketching is, is super important and don't get hung up on trying to copy someone else's sketching style. You know, I I knew a guy that would sketch with a big pen and he would do like this, like really rough wiggly line sketching style. And like, don't be afraid to have your own style. Like everything doesn't need to look the same. Um, You know, everyone sees, you know, you know, the IDOs and like all these gorgeous design sketches and those are great, but you, it's okay to have your own style, but yes, I mean, work on those fundamentals, get your sketching down and also, you know, know what your place is. You know, for me, I moved out of the design space because I'm not the best designer. Um, that's why, and there's other career paths as well. Right. And this is, I can talk a little bit about developers and product line managers here for you in those different roles, um, and, and skill sets. But, um, I, I am, uh, you know, I excel at coming up with ideas, um, but I have trouble communicating them on paper, right? Um, as a designer, I did. There's much stronger sketchers than me. I can draw, right? I can, I can crank out concepts, um, but 
my command of that skill set wasn't as strong as most other people. And I recognized that. And I said, you know what, I need to um, get into some more design management um, and get some experience there. So or the, the developer is also a great path, right? So you guys you know, know a lot about design and um, you're learning about design, learning how to sketch, learning that process. Um, you know, and if you're constantly uncomfortable with it and constantly struggling with it, you either push through that and learn and enhance your sketch skills and you can learn those. Um, or you can also go down the development path and really focus your skill sets on becoming more, you know, more on the developer side still requires drawing skills, you know, still requires the ability to communicate concepts. Um, but it's not as demanding on the, you're the one that always has to come up with the idea, right? Front. That can be that, that, that is one of the hard parts about design is you are the one always coming up with the ideas. Um, and that's, when that's fun for you, that's good. Um, but it can also be challenging for some people. And the developer path is a great path for those people that are creative um, but, and want to be involved in product creation, um, but they have some other skill sets as well. And the way we think about developers, to talk a little bit about that role, is we think of them as you know, project managers um, in the sense that they're the ones that kind of help keep design on track in terms of timeline and making sure the product um, gets ultimately completed on time with a price target in mind. And then they're the ones that also are responsible for commercialization of the product, which means working with the factory that's going to produce this to make sure that it has the highest chance of success and making sure that the tooling's done right, inventing some new jigs or manufacturing processes to help execute a certain operation on the product that hasn't existed before. If you're designing something innovative, you might need to work with a factory to do that because um, they'll maybe be a little bit more myopic in the way they view how things are produced. And you might have an idea of, hey, instead of molding one of these things at a time, let's mold 12 and look at what the cost of a 12 cavity mold is versus a one cavity mold. Um, you know, things, simple things like that. Um, and they're also the ones that say, you know, if we, you know, this, this material's got 48 inch, you know, width goods, right? It's a 40 inch wide roll of fabric. This fabric's 52 inches and we can now fit three back panels on it instead of two. And so that kind of almost engineering mindset, um, that's the way I kind of think, that's the way we think about our product developers is they're kind of the engineer. So when it comes to a technical product, like what Gregory does, that's, that's required. On an apparel type company, um, the developer is going to be more purely focused on like trims, color, lab dips, um, and also some of the commercialization elements. Um, but in the more technical categories, your developer is going to be almost like an engineer. Um, and that's the way, you know, at Gregory, we're a little unique, of course. Every, every company is a little unique, but that's the way we think about our developers is they act as really the engineers that help make sure, um, you know, the, the metals um, and the alloys that we are using are properly heat treated to make sure that these things can um, handle the right load. They're the ones that build the machine that, you know, takes our pack and wiggles it and finds wear points, um, things like that. So the developer will kind of take the, in our world, um, the designer will do an initial spec 
you know, an illustrator. Some are better than others. Um, that goes to the pattern maker. Um, and then the pattern maker creates some prototypes and, and the spec kind of product spec runs in parallel to the prototyping. Um, and then ultimately, um, we'll get past the developer pretty early on in that process. After the first prototype, the developer will kind of take the spec, the product spec with all the dimensions and the, the explanations and maybe some exploded views of how something's assembled. Um, and they'll take it to the next level and make sure it has all the color specs and material specs, um, make sure um, everything's in order for the factory to be able to produce it and for you to have a ultimate finished spec package and color spec package um, that allows the product to be produced. So getting pretty dialed with those, you know, um, any company is going to appreciate that you have some familiarity with, you know, spec packages and you understand what the value is behind those because it's ultimately how the product's going to get produced and it's ultimately how you're going to make sure that the quality standards are followed um, at the factory and your, and yeah, your product gets built the way you want it built. Um, so the end consumer, you know, is happy with it. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, in our world and the developer also does get involved in the costing side of things. So, you know, we're, we happen to be very detailed on that side where we have a bill of materials and, you know, we're um, running through the whole bill of materials to make sure we're not getting overcharged for things or to make, find out where the opportunities are to reduce costs and, so much in soft goods is about um, so much in soft goods, I think, is about being clever in the sense of taking affordable materials and turning them into something that they no one else has imagined before. So there's a lot of ways to do this versus you know taking um, a concept and saying, I want to I want to apply an exotic material. Right. So this is one of the really challenging things about soft goods is it's really easy to go and say, I want to have a titanium frame with a carbon fiber back panel. And, you know, I want to have this, you know, blow molded. I mean, it's, you can get really um, out of sync with the commercial reality in soft goods, especially in backpacks. If you try to get too exotic, um, there's a place for those exotic materials, but oftentimes soft goods is about being really clever with the way you're putting together the cocktail and the way you're building something. And oftentimes, you know, finding materials from other industries that, you know, haven't been applied to soft goods is always a, you know, in the, in the soft goods gear world, you know, backpack specifically, um, finding um, unique materials is always a challenge because every one of your competitors is also looking at the same material books you're looking at from the factory, right? That's what happens. You end up getting these, and I'm sure you guys have some of this or you will have the exposure to some of this, but you get material books of different foams and air meshes and textiles and every textile factory out there is trying to sell them to all the same people. And so that's always a challenge. Um, you know, your competitors are all looking at the same set of tools that you are. And so you got to be really clever about the way you put those together and the way you, you know, think about how they can be utilized. So that's, that's a soft goods challenge constantly for us. With, with that said, as, as a designer, how do you push yourself to, to make product that stands out and is meaningful and impactful and, and, and avoid falling in the same trap of just pushing out more stuff, right? Just, you know, yeah. that's just like everything else that's out there. 
Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, you have to, one of the most important parts about that product brief, you know, is a blank space that's sometimes partially filled out and sometimes not. It can't be filled out until the idea surfaces, but you have to have a unique selling point and a point of differentiation, right? And they really drive this home in school. It gets much harder in the real world um, when you actually, it really has to be something that resonates with consumers. So I think one of the things that we really still struggle with that you tend to get, you know, I think more opportunity in school almost is the research, like the, the consumer research phase of the, of the product. Um, oftentimes in the real world, things get so busy and you start cranking and you start doing, you know, what I call is like theoretical, it's kind of like theoretical design where you, you, you have experience, you're confident in your ideas and you run, you run all the scenarios and testing in your head, you know, that, that can happen. And there's, it, there is no way to um, run that many scenarios in your head in terms of how consumers are going to react. The absolute best way to do it is to take concepts and put them in front of consumers that are unbiased um, and get feedback. And one of the most critical strengths to being a good designer is listening, right? If you don't have the ability to listen ob- objectively, um, and you don't have, if you, if your ego is so strong that, you know, you think your idea is, is the bee's knees and it's the deal. And that's good. That's the way it's going to be. Design conviction is good, right? Standing up for your idea is good. Um, but it's a, it can be a huge pitfall as well. Um, so like anything in life, it's not black or white, right? It's, it's, there's a big gray area there. And I think understanding and recognizing that struggle and finding, you know, being self-aware um, is super important. But you got to know how to listen and you got to know how to check your ego at the door sometimes um, on these ideas. I mean, just yesterday, um, you know, we had a big two-hour long debate on the way we were going to apply a feature, creating a new type of backpack. No one's quite done it before and we want to get it right. And we had a big debate on it and both myself and my product line manager, right? Both had to make um, total concession and just say, okay, like you're right. I'm wrong. Like you've presented a case for this. And so like the ability to change your mind and see someone else's side of things, but ultimately really listen to the consumers and not always to, you know, your own little box, your own little bubble that you're working in is super important. Um, I, I, I am guilty of it just like anybody. You, get, you have an idea and you get stuck on it. And like that's your idea and then you build a project around that idea. And you find, and this is what I talked about earlier, where you think you have this great idea and then you're looking for problems that it can solve. Right? The best way to do something, in my opinion, is to always make sure you're solving a real problem. Otherwise, you don't have much of a case. You don't have a differentiator to talk about in the marketplace and you don't have much value to provide. Um, and you're not going to get that aha moment from the consumer when you show them the product. That's what you're looking for is the smile and the eyes light up and someone's like, that is sick. That's what I like. I, I need that product. I have to have it. Like that's how you create a product that draws people in, that makes them want to touch it, feel it, purchase it. And so I think, you know, that's, that's an important thing to understand as a designer. Um, 
if that answers your question, Chase. Yeah, it does. Thank you. So yeah, there's a, uh, so yeah, let's, I mean, let's, it's 940. So you guys have any questions? Um, I could talk for four or five hours. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's try to hammer some questions out from you guys. If you have anything. If Maybe people want to write those into the chat, that's worked in the past. Um, feel free to write those out. It might take a minute for some to come through, but yeah, no worries. Yeah. So, I mean, but that role, I mean, the, and the product line manager, I talked about the developer a little bit more, right? That's the person, the developers going to the travel into the factories, the designer will travel to the factories as well, typically, but the developer is definitely going over to the factories, definitely executing from that, you know, prototype creation and managing that process all the way through the commercialization to make sure that the things produce. So for us, the developer gets to check out of a project only after multiple successful production runs and it's running smooth, right? And then it's passed over to our, you know, production operations team. Um, the product, product line manager is really that kind of role that does require some experience. You're not going to come out of school and become a product line manager um, likely, but maybe, maybe at some very junior level. Um, I guess that could be possible. Um, but that's a, uh, that's a whole other career path in itself. And, you know, a great one for someone that has a lot of consumer insights, understands how consumers think. Sometimes a product line manager will report to marketing, like product marketing. Um, in our world, that person reports, um, you know, into, into myself. Um, but the, uh, which is kind of both product and marketing, but they're not, they're not in the marketing department. Um, but sometimes you'll see that. You'll see product line managers in marketing um, as well. But I, that's the, I think there's, that's a good way to think about product line managers is the bridge between the two. So I've got a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to gathering that user-based research, how often do the designers get to go out and play with the, the pro staff? Or is it more they're gathering information because most of the time it's also their hobby along with their career? Like how, how does that work at uh, Gregory? Yeah. How often they sent out or how do they do their research? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times people um, are spending their, their, their own time on the trail and getting out and backpacking and hiking. And they, they're passionate about the activities that they're designing the product for. Um, when they're not, um, you know, that's a challenge. Um, and you have to force it, you know. Um, so that's not ideal. Um, but you know, designers will do things for us. Like sometimes I'll send designers out to bed, bath and beyond and target. And I'm like, don't, you know, come back with some new materials that our industry is not using. Um, for example. Um, so sometimes they'll do like material trips like that, where they just go like shopping and they just go spend time looking for materials. And it's important. It's, I think it's very important to do store visits. So store visits are super important, right? You're ultimately trying to design a product. Don't get, don't get too hung up or separated um, in your creativity from what you're ultimately trying to do, which is, you know, sell products. So look at the online direct consumer companies that are successful and how they're messaging product and, you know, what, what's working for them. But, you know, go spend time at REI and, you know, Bass Pro, you know, if you're into that side of equipment and, you know, and Cabela's and listen to people, you know, watch people shop for a backpack, watch customers come in, 
talk to the shop employee, you know, like that's, those are some of the best ways to do things that in companies, a lot of times people get too busy, you know? So I would encourage you to do that now in your, in your education in higher learning on this, you know, and I would encourage you to hold on to that, um, you know, and understand the retail environment, understanding why, what makes consumers tick and what are those trigger points that make them want to buy a product is super important. So one question here in the chat from Jeremiah, what is your favorite part of your, your job? What is your least favorite, favorite product you've worked on in your career? My least favorite product? Oh, your favorite product. Favorite product. But you can uh, share your least favorite one you had to work on too. So um, the, uh, my favorite part about the job is when we, finally get to see the product built. So in soft goods, what will happen is you'll um, design a product, you'll build it, you'll build prototypes out of prototype materials. Um, you'll order all the, the final production materials and all the right colors. For me, my favorite part of the whole process, favorite part of the job is when we get to see all the products built out of the final colors and materials. And when that all comes together um, for a, a, a soft goods um, like backpacking product, for example, it's a true load carrying product, you know, something over, over 50 liters that just has so much engineering that's gone into it. And I put it on and I get that aha feeling for me, like that's the shit there's nothing better than that because there's 400 operations, hand-sewn operations that go into those products. Um, you know, there's 60, you know, different materials. It's, it's a crazy product. And to have watched the last 12 months of our whole team pining over and sometimes high-fiving and sometimes uh, battling over every detail to get it right, um, that's a really fun end result. So that's my favorite part of the job is seeing the final product for the first time in, its, you know, in all of its right colors and materials and textures. Um, that takes a lot of work and energy and time and soft goods because you, know, you got to go lab dip materials, get the right colors. Then you got to order them. That takes time. So you never see things out of the perfect, you know, color and material and texture out of the gate. It just takes time. Um, my least favorite part is um, probably, you know, working um, in spreadsheets, um, you know, on finance um, stuff. Um, I do enjoy it. Um, it's kind of where the rubber hits the road on some of the back end business, but um, Working on working on the P and L, which is you know just our profit and loss statements and creating PowerPoint presentations, um, probably one of my least favorite parts of the job. But honestly, I, I've been working for Gregory now for um, eighteen years. You know, I've held six or seven different roles. Um, I've owned some of the company at one point. I've moved the office um, three times from different states. It's gone through six different owners. I've put on the suit and tie. Um, in New York to sell the company with finance firms. And I've, you know, spent weeks on the trail, you know, backpacking and I'm still involved in a day-to-day -day level in product creation. But uh, through all that, I can count the days, swear, swear, swear to God, count the days on two hands that I haven't wanted to go to work and do my job. So there is something to be said for, um, you know, being passionate about what you do. Um, and that's all the old cliches, but, um, if you find yourself not enjoying it, you know, bail, change course, you got plenty of time. Um, and then find, find your area that you like. I, I got out of 
my senior thesis, we had to do a thesis at George Tech, and we, I had this partnership with Motorola to create this handheld wearable device. It was like pretty far ahead of its time, and I was doing all this medical research. And I was spending time in hospitals, and I hated it. And I told our, my professor at the time, I'm like, I'm going to make a backpack for my senior thesis. And he was like, no, you are not. No, no way. Dude, this project's too cool. You have access to Motorola's prototype lab. And I went and talked to him and I said, I don't like it. Like, I'm, I don't care about it. I don't, I don't like the medical side of things. I'm just not that into the, to, to, to it. And I love, I love the outdoors. And he was like, all right, go get some. You know? And talking to him years later, you know, after you know, spending um, thousands of days overseas, seeing the world, building backpacks, learning the business, he's just like, yeah, man, good call. Like that's, that's, that was the right call. So it's, uh, it's important to follow that, that intuition where you can. Is there a, a favorite product that you had worked on? Um, you know, because we're like always evolving and things are getting better every season. It's the answer to that question typically, because all we're so passionate about what we do and all of our, you know, passion and energy um, goes into the latest stuff we build. So like my, one of my favorite products that we've ever created is a, a new product called the Katmai and Kalmia. And they're uh, um, kind of, a, they're basically, it's a new kind of suspension system with like a patented floating lower back um, that is a really, really comfortable bag. And I've been on three backpacking trips that in the last six months because of COVID, I've had a lot more time. And that's that that product will be you know at REI in in uh, March um, and launched on our website around the same time. But it's a it's I know you can't see it, but it's one of my favorite products um, that we've ever done. It's got it's built with recycled materials, and it's it's a really really pretty amazing product. Um, but other than that, it's probably um, maybe our Zulu and Jade products are other really fun ones. Um, those are ventilated backpacks that have a, have a, have a challenging suspension to create. So, um, I don't want to talk for the rest of the time about that, but yeah, those are just some examples. All right. So I've got one for you. So students are always asking me, how do they break into kind of this backpack market? So if you had any advice for them as far as what they could demonstrate in portfolio, you know, a lot of them are like, well, should every project be a backpack? I'm like, no, they want to see some, you know, breath to your skills. But any kind of pointers you can give students now that are trying to work their way into the backpack market segment? I think that... <clears throat> I think that you probably you know, want to show that you understand um, the kind of commercial realities of backpacks. And to do that, you know, try to build or design something that would compete with, like find, a, find some best-selling products out there, right? And try to build something that competes with them. Um, as a, as a project, you know, try to find something in that, in a space, like say take a hydration day pack or take a ventilated backpack, take something very specific. And I would say showing a project like that 
that really shows I've built this commercial thing that actually could is is in the realm of reality and not just total blue sky. Um, creativity is good. Like you want to see that creativity, but a project that shows um, problem real problems that were identified and the solutions, I think, is super important. And just kind of understanding that the reality of it and being like these are the best sellers in the space and show something that can actually compete with like an Osprey or a Gregory um, pack out there. And I think, yeah, I think just a ground, one, one project in your portfolio that's very grounded, you know, and if you, if you have the ability, um, you know, to, you know, pattern some of that stuff, showing that you have a passion for the pattern making side and you have some understanding of that. It's, it's, it's important. You know, we look for people that, have a passion for the craft. Um, you know, the backpacking market's not a huge market, right? The technical backpacking market, so you got to recognize that it's not a giant market. So there's not a ton of companies out there um, that are doing it. You know, there's 10 or 12 companies that you want to go work for. So it is, it is a niche. Um, it's a fun one. Um, but you know who your audience is for technical backpacks. So that's what I would focus on. And I would focus on, you know, trying to reach out. Um, people like myself like connect you with someone on our team or you know, try to get some exposure in time and, you know, learn, learn about it like we're doing today um, to show that you, you know, you, you get how the process works. Maybe that gives you an edge, you know, but showing a passion for it, showing a pa- passion for cutting. So, you know, it's what you, it's what you do all day at a company like Gregory. It's all backpacks all the time. So, you know, we, we, we look for designers that truly love backpacks and, truly love, you know, gear carry equipment because if not, they're going to get bored. Yeah. So kind of on that note, um, how important is mentorship to you? I know having someone like Wayne Gregory, that's a, that's a phenomenal mentor, right? Kind of a legend in the industry. Um, you know, how important is that to you and, and how, how do you build those relationships? How do you find, how do these students find their own Wayne Right. Maybe they'll never find someone who's that level, but, but there's plenty of people in the industry, um, you know, who are looking to get back and yeah, at least give advice. Like, how do you, wh- what, you know, how do you value that? And uh, what yeah. recommendations do you give to students? Um, you know, I think being professional, but aggressive in your, you know, or ambitious in your, your outreach, you know, it's something I didn't do a great job of in school um, is, you know, the outreach side of things in terms of a little bit of networking and like try to get to know some people. You don't want to be overbearing, but, you know, try to get to know some people in the industry, Um, you know, go to maybe some of the local events when those start back up and um, develop some relationships. Uh, Try to get an internship. That's the most valuable thing you can do. Um, And I know Chase, we're working on how to make that easier to do. Um, and maybe some retail experience isn't a bad thing. Even if it's just one, one shot at it, like working the floor at REI, if you love the outdoors and the equipment and that's where you want to be, I mean, go, go work there part-time, um, get some retail experience. I think that's, that's a pretty cool thing to see on a resume of a designer because it shows like I cared enough. I went and worked at this outdoor shop so I could really, you know, 
understand how consumers are thinking about their product and what their, you know, purchasing decisions and priorities are. And like, I wanted to learn more. So I worked at retail and that's going to be pretty valuable little checkbox. That'd be pretty, pretty cool to see on a resume of a designer or a developer or a product line manager, especially a product line manager. All right. Well, I think we're just about out of time, so we don't want to keep you on Zoom all day. Cool. But uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and and uh, give these students some uh, great advice on how to move forward in the industry. And <clears throat> I yeah. guess I look forward to hopefully getting to finally meet you in person. And uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I I know there's a lot of broad stroke stuff. We just kind of ripped through a bunch of things, and some stuff will feel like masterly obvious, but you know, if you can take away one thing from a conversation like this, that's, that's important. So, um, you know, I'm happy to jump back on a call with you guys at any time and we can dive deep into one topic or just do an hour of Q and a. So, um, I'm here if you need me for that and, um, you know where to find me. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlanderbag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.